Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome into the StoryCraft Cafe. We are in the midst of our Rewrite a Novel with Dabble in 60 Days Challenge. And this week, we go a little deeper on plot. You know, the uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about character for a couple of weeks. And then last week, we, we talked about plot. But this week, we're going to dig deeper into plot and how do we ensure that our plot gets deeper and thicker as we go you know the old saying ah the plot thickens well we're going to talk today about how to thicken that plot join us each thursday at 11 a.m central time that's noon eastern as we broadcast these challenge shows live on youtube you can go to storycraft.cafe and find a link where you can join us live, submit your questions, put some comments up, join the conversation. Storycraft.cafe is where you find all information about upcoming live events. We're constantly having live events every week, and not only challenges, but also interviews with authors that are you know, currently publishing and doing great things in the publishing industry. Come hear insight from all of these different people there's always something to learn no matter if this author publishes in your particular genre or not we can learn from each other storycraft.cafe is where you find all of that now on to our show and we are live here in the storycraft cafe to talk about um the the latest uh, edition of our rewrite a novel in 60 days challenge uh joining me today is rick partlow josh hayes mayor uh um, he's he's supposed to be here we'll see and well, he lives in had... kansas and i understand that some tornado picked him up and delivered him to some place where he was yeah, in there's, color. <laughs> <laughs> there's literally no telling when you're talking about kansas anything can happen um how are you rick i'm doing well i finished a book uh, two days ago, so which you know. uh, was that the latest Drop Trooper or is this a new, no? It's, this is a new series. Okay, um, is this first book in the series? Yeah, yeah, it's the first one. Yeah, um, what, what's the what's the series about? What if you know? What's your elevator pitch for the series? Um, it's um, about a college student who is abducted by. Aliens from 1987 and spends 35 years in stasis on this alien zoo ship and then wakes up when they're attacked by pirates and has to work with other captives to save the ship and take it over and survive in this new star system way out there. I love it. Where, where did the idea for that come from? Like, are you just... What, are you the kind of person that you think of like just the what if and and just think of ways to make this what if happen like 
like what a what an oddball idea that when you start talking about it, it says oh I, I totally want to read that how do you go from oddball idea to uh i this is a a series that i'm doing with jeff cheney okay so i brainstormed with him for the uh plot gotcha so um, um Nice. Do you, do you see this as as having series potential? Oh, it's definitely going to be a series. I'm, I'm, I have to write the first three books before he publishes the first one. <laughs> so it's definitely it's going to be at least three books, um, and uh, probably a lot more. Hopefully. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, how much time do you take between? Like you just wrapped that book. Um, when, when are you going to start the next one or have you? Um, no, I started writing a short story in that universe, actually the same day I finished the book. Yeah. Because I'm kind of in that universe. I just want to get done. The short story is going to be like a, a magnet type of thing, you know, uh, for marketing. And it's also going to be published with the first book. Um, after I finish the short story, I'm going to outline three other books and then I'll start new series. I'll start, I'll start drop trooper 13, uh, at the beginning of April. Gotcha. Do, do you, um, do you kind of build in off time between books when you're writing to, to give yourself a chance to do something different with your life or to, you know, to think about other things, do you, do you, or do you even think in terms like that? I uh, I have some things scheduled like um I'm going to Yellowstone for 2 weeks in May. Nice. Um and uh, we're you know we're going to do a couple of things as a family. So I usually try to work the uh the writing breaks to those pl- it's not like I it's not like I schedule the writing and then schedule the vacation. It's more like the vacation scheduled. So let me see uh, how I can get my writing in around that without, because I have made the mistake before of having the vacation scheduled. And then I'm like a, just starting the climax of a book and I have to take two weeks off and can't write. And that's a, that's a nightmare. That's like, you know, you get back and it takes forever to get back into the flow of the book. So I try to make sure that I schedule the writing so I don't, so I finish something off before yeah. I, <laughs> before I go. So I don't wind up, caught in mid book. Some people say, uh, you know, that they write every day, no matter where they are, Christmas, you know, vacation, whatever, they take a laptop. And even if it's just a page, they get a page in and that, that flow never breaks. But it, it sounds like when you go on vacation, like when you go to Yellowstone, are you just out of writer mode? It's not so much being out of writer mode as it is, like when I go to Yellowstone, if I go for like a week in the fall, well, it gets dark early. It gets dark like, you know, six o'clock or something. Yeah. So you can go back to your hotel room and you have time to write. In the spring, it gets light at five in the morning and it gets dark at like 930 at night. <laughs> and I'm on the road the whole time or hiking or whatever. So I get back, you know, to the hotel room and, and it's 930 or whatever. I'm, I'm wiped out. I just got to go to bed. I can't. I don't have the mental energy to write. I've tried before to write like uh, at lunchtime, I'll stop the car, you know, and try to write, but it's, it's hard. It just can't get in the mindset 
So it, it usually it, the only thing that I am able to do when I go and I go every spring, the only thing I'm able to do is uh, do a little outlining maybe. Yeah. So, um, and, and th- this doesn't really have anything to do with, with plot other than, um, um, you know, just th- it's all integral to your process and, and you are a plotter. So um, what about your, your writing tools? Like, are you the kind of person that can take notes on his phone or open up a, um, you know, a writing app like dabble or something like that on your phone and, and write um, like if you're, if you're out in the wilderness and an idea pops in your head and you're like, Oh God, I, I can't lose this. How would you go about capturing that idea? Well, previously I've always taken along a notebook yeah, and, and I'll write it down. Um, as I've gotten older, my handwriting has gotten worse. So Same. it's harder and harder for me to read what I wrote down. So I've, I've started, uh, I take my phone and I will uh, open up an app and, and write a note in my phone usually. Gotcha. Um, do you, um, do you, or I will record a note on my phone. If I'm like driving, I'll just hit record button. And, that's a great idea. Uh, do you, do you ever get back home and start kind of gathering all the notes that you've taken and um, like, how do you then assimilate that into your current writing? Um, the way my mind works is usually if I write something down, yeah, then I don't need to look at it again. If I don't write it down, then I'll forget it. But if I write it down, you know, I actually have to take the time to write it down. Then when the time comes, I, I just remember it. That's just the way it works for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in, can you define what plot means to you when, when you start thinking about, um, the plot of a book, what does that entail? Like when you, what do you consider as being the, the elements that make up plot? Are you talking about what distinguishes plot from something else or do, or what, what the, uh, the, how I break down a plot. Well, what for, well, let's, let's start at the basic. What, what defines plot? What, what is, what do, plot what do is, you mean? Plot is what happens plot? in a story. It's, it's, it's what, what the, it's the beginning, middle and end of a story. It's, it's, you know, what's going to happen as opposed to character or setting or things like right. that. It's the actual events that are going to happen in the story. Yeah. And it, it's so interesting because you start thinking of, of plot, character, setting as these um, completely separate things in a story. But when they all start working together in a story, there's a lot of bleed over between, you know, character sort of feeds the plot, almost becomes plot because this character would only do things a certain way. And that informs the plot. Um, you know, and, and, uh, I, I've heard, you know, the saying character is plot and, you know, that depends on how you write really. I mean, if you, if you, um, especially if you're a, uh, a pantser, you know, somebody who doesn't outline thoroughly, it may be that you want to let your characters take you to a different place to what makes more sense for the plot. But if you are, 
more of a strict outliner, then the plot is going to be, the plot's going to guide the characters. It's going to guide the evolution of the characters rather than the other way around. Yeah. And both are fun. I mean, both can work. Um, I've done it both ways. Um, on this last book that I just completed that I was telling you about, um, I did something very different for me just because it felt right. I followed an outline until about the 50,000 word mark. And then I looked at that outline and I said, you know, the last part of this book is not interesting. I thought it would be, I thought it could, because I, I tend to make the last part of the book when I outline, I'd make it last part a little less specific because yeah. I want to, to let things that happen in the first part of the book dictate it. <clears throat> but this one just wasn't interesting. It wasn't going to be dramatic enough. So I just threw it out in about 50,000 to 90,000. I just did all that by the seat of my pants and let it, let the characters guide me. So th th I'm, I'm glad you, you said that um, because that's one thing I want to talk about when you get to the end of the book, how do you determine whether your plot is doing what it's supposed to do? Um, you know, what, uh, how do you look at the story and judge whether, whether this has held up or not? Like what, what criteria is it just a subjective feeling when I read this, I just don't get the, you know, the excitement yeah, that I want to get. Basically, I mean, whether you can tell or not as is influenced a lot by how experienced you are yeah. at doing this and how much you've written before. And to, to a great extent, how much you've read is um, <clears throat> if you've read a lot of books in your genre, you're going to have a feeling like, am I building up to what I have outlined? Yeah. Is this build up going to lead to, to what I have already outlined or does it feel like it's leading somewhere else? If it feels like it's leading somewhere else, I mean, you could either, I don't recommend doing what I did. I, I can get away with that because I've, it's my 61st book. Right. Uh, but if you're right on your first or second or third, you need to go back and rewrite that part of your outline. If it's not feeling like you're building up to what you intended, then just go back and rewrite the end of your book, the, the, the outline for the end of your book. Uh, just give it a more, give it, give it a, uh, climax that fits more with the buildup you've already done. Um, being this is your 61st book, um, compared to someone at the beginning of the writing career, do you start thinking in terms of, um, like this plot didn't do it, it, it doesn't have a certain thing at the end. I can make up for that in the next book in the series, or I can use this perceived deficiency as a kind of jumping off point for maybe a, a whole new storyline that I can explore in another book. Or do you ever start thinking like that, that, you know, this is something I can resolve in the series as opposed to fixing this chapter. I try not to. Yeah. I mean, there's been a couple of times where I did because it was necessary, but usually I try to make every book um, self-contained in yeah. that it it brings up 
you know, plot points and as it arcs and you complete those in that book. And there's things you have to carry on to the next book in the series, but I don't like leaving unresolved plot points. You know, like if, uh, for instance, here's something just as an example. Uh, my One of my series, Wholesale Slaughter, it's a six book series. Right. There is a relationship between uh, the one of the main characters and the other, you know, male and female. And I was urged by somebody that I should make that unresolved at the end of the first book and keep, you know, keep it like lingering for a couple of books that it would be, it would be better for marketing purposes for people, you know, the whole will they, won't they thing. But I didn't feel like I could, I didn't feel like that was, I don't say right. I mean, cause it's not right or wrong, but it, I didn't feel like it was my style and I didn't feel like it fit with the characters in the book. Yeah. They weren't those kind of people. And I, you know, resolved that in the book, the first book and, you know, their relationship grew as the, as the books went on, but it, it was never a will they, won't they, or are they going to get together? Cause it was obvious from the beginning that they were, you know, that that was uh, was not something that I was gonna do the whole Sam and Diane you know <laughs> business was so. Um, I uh, I posted over at Storycraft Cafe um, this morning that we were gonna um, talk about this subject, and I said, um, you know, I. I I've kind of used the the metaphor of uh, of of making a, a roux, you know, in a stew and thickening that plot. Um, and and someone said, in, in I think kind of a joking matter, um, what about thinning your plot? Um, which kind of got my wheels turning because we always think about uh, plot in terms of whether the plot is getting thicker. But what if your plot is too thick? And you get to the end of the book and you're like, there's just way too much going on here. Like I have, I have overwritten this book. Um, first off, have you ever found yourself in a position where you've kind of overwritten? And if so, how do you start whittling that down? Um, I have never really gotten in that position I don't believe. I mean, somebody else would probably be have to tell me after reading the book whether they thought it was. But um, yeah, that may not be something that you're a good judge of your own work. I don't know. I have had there have been books that I've had that have been like later books in the series where you have plot points from books one, two, and three, or whatever, coming together in a different book, and it and it gets pretty thick. But by that point, you feel like people have invested enough in the, in the series that they're not going to, you know, be daunted by uh, having a little bit of more detail and a little um, more complicated scheming. Yeah. I feel like maybe that maybe that in my early books, there were some that I tried to make things too complicated at the end where I took those, that took that stuff out. Yeah. But it's been a long time since I wrote those. So it's hard for me to remember if I, uh, at what point exactly I stopped trying to do that. <laughs> but I, I think, I think it is important though for people just starting that the end of the book 
be not, I don't want to say simple, but as easy to follow as possible. Yeah. You don't want to make, I mean, it's okay to have complications, but you don't want to make things to where they can't follow the resolution. Uh, there have been books that I've read where the resolution of the novel was so complicated and, and on so many fronts that I felt cheated. I felt like they skimped on the, the resolution. I'll, I'll give you an example. It's a great okay. book. A lot of people love it. Uh, but, um, oh, now I'm blanking on the title. Of course I am. Uh, it's the, that cyberpunk novel, a guy named Hero Protagonist. Uh, 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 you, you know what I mean? It's by. Uh, 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 is, is that the Neil Stevenson? Yes, it's uh, from uh, Snow Crash. Snow, Snow Crash, Crash, yeah. I could Sorry. see the cover, but I couldn't. I kept, I kept wanting to say Cryptonomicon, but that's not the same book. Yeah, um, it's not, no, but, but similar, end, but not. At the end of Snow Crash, there's like four different plot threads coming mm -hmm. together. And it felt a lot to me like he gave short shrift to a couple of them that there was that there should have been a denouement for one of them that didn't exist. And this guy who was like kind of a anti-hero uh, kind of antagonist pr protagonist yeah. type um, is left on the verge of death at the end of the book. And you don't find out what happens to him. <laughs> he just gets taken away in an ambulance and, and the, the, the female character who was, they had a big connection. She just like blows off what happens to him. And you have no idea what goes on after that. And I was like, is there a part of this book missing? <laughs> right. Or so was, as, was he thinking that this would have serious potential and he would pick that no, up? I don't think so. I think, I think he just kind of blew it off. It feels like he, he didn't think it was that important, but. You know, reading the book, this is an important character. This is an important character arc for both right. of them. And then you just blew it off at the end. So you have to be careful that if you have a complicated um, series of plot arcs that are coming together at the end of your book, don't blow off the resolution of any of them. I mean, and if you wind up with a Return of the King movie style thing where you have all these endings, well, maybe you should rethink things but if it's better to have all those endings than to blow off the resolution of your arcs because you're going to cheat people if you do do you think speaking of of that um do you think that that readers tastes change um and therefore storytelling has to change um for instance when you talk about um the return of the king and you have all of these storylines that that kind of cap off and they all get their resolution in in one way or another and and some people you know if you're writing a book now and handling it in that way they may say well that's trite you can't do it like that but then you also can't do it like Neil Stevenson did and just have someone go off in an ambulance and never tell you what happened um do well i think do, it definitely has changed since since yeah. tolkien wrote i mean Tolkien, his writing style was even out of date for when he wrote the books, you know, mm -hmm. but people loved the books because of all the attention, the details and the languages and the civilizations right. and the histories. But I mean, as far as actual writing style, his writing style was not, was not, uh, 
modern. I'll say for the appropriate. Time. It was it's not a modern writing style for, for when he wrote the books in the fifth. I think it's the 40s or 50s. Yeah. So 40s when when he was doing the heavy writing. Yeah. Yeah. So that I mean he but Tolkien is the exception to a lot of rules because he basically created a genre. Right. You know and. Uh, but yeah, you writing styles do change. It, it used to be that, uh, like for instance, third person omniscient was a common writing style back in around you know the turn of the 20th century up till about the 1930s maybe. Right. But that changed, and now nobody, you know, nobody who wants to get published would think of doing a third person omniscient novel. Um, <laughs> at least not for not for anything except maybe a literary some sort of highbrow literary thing that, you know, trying to make some kind of stylistic point, but if you're writing a, a Tom Clancy style thriller or a mystery novel or a science fiction or romance, what, whatever, nobody's going to write third person omniscient in anything except for some kind of literary experimentation. So you definitely, things definitely change. I think, um, I think how we end books has changed to some extent. I mean, uh, I feel like you've gone through several evolutions of expected endings. You know what what audiences expect from an ending. Yeah. Um. In in there was there was a time like back in the sixties and seventies where a lot of endings were very very cryptic and and uncertain and unfulfilling. Which is why I hate a lot of books from the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we talked about that last week. That writing short stories, it's almost um, not only is it okay to to have an ambiguous ending. A lot of times, it's kind of expected in short stories. Like we we don't expect to have uh, uh, everything wrapped up in a bow at the end of it. Not necessarily. We're much more forgiving in a. 10,000 word or less story to just, you know, kind of, you know, unresolve at the end, but we will not put up with that in a hundred, 120,000 word story. There's, it's almost like the, the form dictates the writing style. Well, when I look back at all the short stories that I really liked, I don't know if I can think of, too many that were unresolved at the ending. Yeah. So I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Oops. some people will accept it. I, I'm, yeah. I pretty much want some, doesn't have to resolve everything, but I, I want the main, the main question of the story resolved. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I agree with you on that, but I guess what I'm saying is that in a short story, I kind of like the, I like to be able to, to let this character live in my head a little bit, you know, like maybe they solved this particular problem, but maybe I learned just enough about this character that, that I want to spend more time with them. If, if that makes sense. To some extent, I guess that yeah. depends on the, on the short story. I mean, some of them, you're not going to spend any more time with that character because they're right. dead. <laughs> <laughs> true. So. True. Um, since since you are a a heavy plotter outliner and um that affords you the ability to to not very often get to the end of a book and realize that that the plot didn't work or the characters don't live up to expectations because you have handled a lot of those questions in the very beginning before you do the 
majority of the the writing work. Um, do you ever find yourself um, it when you're outlining? How often do you revise that outline when you get like you get to the end of it? Do you then kind of go back over that outline to see if the outline is living up to its potential? And how much work do you do once you've got a completed outline? How much editing do you do to that outline before the drafting starts? Well, what I do is probably not what most people are going to be able to get okay. away with doing. Because, like I said, I've been doing it for a long time. But back in sure. the beginning, when I was doing it, I did revise the endings of the outlines quite a bit. Uh, I would get to like the midpoint in the book, and I would say, you know, there's a few things that need to be changed in this outline. The, this character doesn't feel like somebody who would do this. And I would go in and change the out the the end of the outline and make the ending different. Make usually what I wound up doing most often was changing which characters did what. I knew what had to get done. But as the, as the book progressed and characters evolved, I would say, no, this character isn't the one that should do this at the end. It's this character. So I, I would change like which character died and which character uh, made the heroic sacrifice or whatever, you know, because it would feel like that feels natural now. As I've, as I've gone along, like 61 books in, I have kind of a feel for it. And I, it's not that I don't change things anymore. Yeah. It's that I don't have to write it down. I just, I know it. I, I can just change it in my head. And honestly, as I was saying before, writing things down for me, I don't have a, I don't have a photographic memory, but I have a, the kind of memory where once I write something down and go over it once or twice, it usually sticks. So I can just change the outline in my head and just work off that without going back and rewriting it. But, but you know, that, that's, that's after a long, long time and doing this. So if you're outlining and you feel like things aren't working, yes, definitely open up that outline, go in there and change whatever you have to. <clears throat> you began your writing career as a, a pantser and, and you've told us um, about, how your um, writing, not only your writing production changed when you became uh, a plotter, um, but also how your storytelling elevated when you adopted this um, style of writing that you that you do now. Um, what was the hardest thing for you switching from? pantsing to plotting what was there there had to be an obstacle that that just felt like you know it it's like when when i know for me when when i have shifted from more of a pants review to a plotter um you know there there's just um it just feels like work sometimes you know and and you don't well, that's the big that's the big problem that's the yeah. big obstacle is that when you are when you when I was pantsing, it felt like this was a hobby. It was yeah. something I did for fun. And it was at the time, you know, just yeah. I, I mean, I wanted to originally I wanted to uh, you know get traditionally published and that didn't work out. And so after that, when I started self-publishing, this did not seem like something I could make a living at. So I was just doing this for fun because a lot of people read the first book and I'm like, well, 
you know, I want to, I want to write something that they're going to enjoy. Uh, I wasn't thinking about marketing. I wasn't thinking about how it sold or, you know, series potential. I was just, I want to write something that the people like the first book will enjoy and something I enjoy writing. So mostly pantsing was a, was a fun thing. And when I started outlining, it turned from that to kind of work, you know, and, and that's something you have to get over. Yeah. And, um, I can't, I can't advise anybody on what's going to work for them. But for me, um, <laughs> I, I was, I was in a position where I had, uh, worked on mental discipline for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was a long distance runner, you know, and did triathlons and stuff and did martial arts. So I worked, I, I was not a very mentally disciplined person when I was younger. And it wasn't until I was in probably my uh, early forties that I got really mentally disciplined. Yeah. Like late thirties, early forties. Um, not to say I didn't have discipline at all, but yeah. mostly I, I responded to external pressure, like somebody else putting a deadline, somebody else telling me this is what I had to do. I didn't have that internal discipline to to really be a writer until I started doing all these things that brought me into like, especially I, it, it's funny, but marathon, long distance running, you know, training for marathons, that gives you a mental discipline that helps us so many other things. Um, when you, when nobody is telling you, you have to do something that's really, really hard and somewhat unpleasant at first, um, it, it, it teaches you a lesson on how to go on, how to face things that things that have to be done. And I think being a parent helped with this too. You know, there's things you have to do. You don't like them. Uh, and you can either you can either resent them yeah. and hate them or you can learn to embrace them and just know that there's something that has to be done and there's an outcome that you're working toward and the outcome is worth the unpleasantness. Since it's being a parent, uh, training for a marathon or a triathlon or uh, training for your next belt in martial arts, you do a lot of stuff that's uh, hard and sometimes unpleasant. And you don't feel like doing it. You know, you, you get up, you get up at like four, thir- four o'clock in the morning uh, to go for a 20 mile run. And you're like, oh man, I, I don't, I just want to go back to bed. Yeah. And then you've got to convince yourself, well, let me just get up and get ready and see how I feel. And then you're like, well, I'll just start running. And if, uh, if I feel like crap at the end of three or four miles, I'll just turn around and come back or I'll just do 10 miles today or whatever. And then you wind up doing what you're going to do because, you know, you, once you get, get, so it's the same thing with, with writing. Um, You write the outline and even though it's not as fun as just sitting there and, you know, tapping away and then, Oh, that's not, I'll I'll go back and this isn't, you know, and taking a year to write a book, even though it's not the same kind of fun and you don't wind up with the same sort of relevatory uh, surprise when characters do things you didn't expect them to. It's rewarding 
I mean, you, you, you finish a book and you still have that same uh, serotonin release reward of I finished something really hard that most people never do. Just like running right. a marathon, you know, you finish a marathon and you're like, most people will never do this, you know? Um, and if you, um, if you have the mental discipline, if you can keep up with it, you know, it, it becomes, it becomes a habit. It becomes a lifestyle. Right. Cause, cause once you do something often enough, even no matter how hard it is or how unpleasant it was to begin with, it becomes easier and easier because it becomes a lifestyle. It's like, uh, when you're a kid, uh, maybe brushing your teeth and flossing seem like torture. You don't want to do it, but you do it when you start doing it when you're a little kid. And then by the time you're in school, you know, it's just something you right. do. You don't think about it anymore. Well, it's the right. same thing with, with writing. You know, if you keep writing, you know, this many words a day and you keep outlining and following that outline and just putting the stuff on paper, whether or not it feels inspired, eventually it's going to become a lifestyle, not even a habit. It's going to become something you just do. And you won't be sitting there thinking, oh, you know, I just don't feel like writing today any more than you'd be sitting there thinking, oh, I don't feel like going into work today. You know, I, I don't care. You know, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. going to take the next week off and yeah. get fired. Yeah. That's, the mortgage still has to be paid. Yeah. Uh, that's the other thing. I mean, that's something that wasn't, that wasn't a pressure for me at first because I wasn't a full-time writer. And even when I became a full-time writer, my wife is a pharmacist. So if I failed, you know, if I didn't accomplish what I was trying to accomplish, we always had a, a safety net. You know, yeah. we weren't going to starve. We weren't going to lose the house because she made a good, good amount of money. And it wasn't, it took a long time before I finally said, you know, I, I'm at the point where I'm, you know, this is, this is what I do and I can make a living at it. I love it. And I said, this is exactly how I tricked myself to writing two. Oh, just do 200 words, et cetera, et cetera. Then I have a thousand words. And uh, Anna, you're, you're absolutely right. If you, you know, um, getting up and, and just committing to a little bit of something. And then normally most people want, once you're doing the thing, I mean, you might as well finish what you set out to do. It's, you know, why get up and, and put forth all this effort and then just, just pull out of it. Um, I have a, a little different take on that. Um, and uh, although I, I 100% uh, agree with everything you said, Rick, there's a great, um documentary film uh it's called it might get loud i think it's i think is the title and it's three guitarists um from different generations jimmy page from led zeppelin the edge from u2 and jack white from the white stripes and the raconteurs and a hundred other bands that he's participated with um but they're kind of telling their stories of how they became musicians and how they approached the instrument and, uh, you know, all these different things. But Jack White um, talks about um, he's, he's talking while he's fashioning a one string guitar out of a two by four and a Coke bottle <laughs> and a, and a, a, you know, a piece of metal wire. And he's, 
he's building this thing and he puts an, an electric guitar pickup on it. And then he's playing like slide guitar out of this thing that he just built and he's making music out of it. And he talks about how, um, in in the Bible, uh, in the beginning, when uh, when when God tells Adam that that uh, man has to toil, um, you know, f- from the ground and and to to make things, and that that'll be kind of part of human nature that we work at something, and and he 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 uh, likened that to to his musical career, and he said some people want to you know, buy a a thousand dollar Gibson Les Paul that's in uh, perfect, you know, shape and, you know, all this. And uh, he said, but he likes to go to to pawn shops and get uh, a guitar that's kind of the neck is twisted and it it's you won't stay in tune and and have to work at making something out of it. He said something special comes out of the toil, out of the, the imperfection of this instrument and me making something creative out of the imperfections becomes something different, you know? And if, if everything is just glorious in your writing day in and day out, wonderful, but it's those times where it is hard that a lot of times something really great comes out of that. Have you ever experienced something like that where, where you had to really, really work at it and on the other side of it, like something you know better than you comes out of it almost um when i was pot when i was when i was pantsing yeah uh that happened a lot i mean there were there were times when um there were times like when i was taking a year to write a book that was because there were times where for two or three weeks i would be stuck on a plot point you know and not knowing where to go next and everything I thought of and tried didn't seem to work. And that forced me to come up with something, you know, innovative and uh, something that, that uh, wound up being really cool. And that was one of the, that was one of the perks of doing it that way was that you, you had so much time to let things percolate and, and ruminate in your, in your mind that whatever came out, you know, really fit what you've been working on. Um, since the, since I started outlining, um, usually that kind of um, sticking point, you know, mm-hmm. the hard point that comes in the outlining phase, and sometimes that'll take a while. Like sometimes I can write an outline in two or three two or three days. Yeah. Sometimes it'll take two weeks. And the reason it'll take two weeks isn't because the book's longer. It's because I get to something and I'm like, what, what can happen next? You know, how do I bring this all together? But uh, that's the, that's the thing with outlining. You can do that in, in the two to three weeks, you know, when you're outlining and then go right through the book. Whereas the other way around, you, you stop writing for two or three weeks. (laughs) What do you do when you reach one of those points where it it's tough and you can't figure out where to take the plot? Um, do you have you developed little habits that, like, when you recognize when you've run up on a thing like that and you go do yard work, or, or like, is there a a thing that you have recognized as this is the thing I do when I need to think through something? 
Um, there's no one thing I do. Um, I tend to think about it no matter what I'm doing, you know, and just, but it does help to get away from the keyboard and just like go to the gym or go for a walk or go outside and do yard work. Something, something that doesn't require my brain to work on something else or to think about anything else, or I can just let it kind of, you know, float, float free, you know, in the ether and, and see if anything comes out. Um, but mostly the way that I get around those bottlenecks is yeah. I will just either take out a pen or get on it, the keyboard and I'll write, I'll write like little bullet points and like have like 10 different ideas of where things could go. And I'll just write, this is one way that could happen. This is another way. This is another way. And by the time I get usually to like the third or fourth, I really don't even have to get, I'll write more sometimes just to make sure I'm not overlooking anything. But usually it's like the third or fourth one that I try that, that winds up being the, winds up being the answer. Interesting. Um, do, does setting affect your plot? Um, have you ever like maybe had an, an outlining session where it just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere um, or not going where you hoped it would go, but then change a setting. And then all of a sudden the plot opens up. Not that I can remember because usually I'm the kind of person who, when I was younger, mm -hmm. I just filled notebooks full of background information, you know, yeah. settings, histories, things like that. So usually for me, the setting is, it's just the setting. Yeah. There's not a lot. There's a few times where I will go back and adjust some minor detail, but usually for me, the setting is kind of like the canvas I'm painting on. And if I throw away that canvas then it's pretty much a whole new painting. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and, um, do you, cause find... I, I kind of, I kind of like the setting. I kind of yep. like, that's like, like the, that's like the hobbyist, uh, fanboy, you know, nerd part of me is the one that likes making all the settings. Right. And the work is, you know, the story, you know, that's, that's the craft and everything, but the setting is where I get to just play, you know, and yeah. make up something that if it was fun. Well, I, I guess at the heart of it, um, all stories are stories of human interaction at, at some point. Um, and whether that's set on the bridge of a, of a space or, ship. or sentient, sentient interaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's qualify that. Um, or it's, um, you know, takes place on uh, a Caribbean Island. Um, the, the tension is always how these characters interact. So um, I guess in, in that way, um, setting is, is sort of irrelevant or if not irrelevant is, is maybe seasoning, uh, in the gumbo. Um, because the, the, the real plot is what these characters are doing with each other. Well, setting, setting affects the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's, uh, not confrontation, conflict setting affects the conflict. Yeah. Uh, the con the nature of the conflict is going to depend on the setting. But, you know, the people, the people are always going to react and behave like people, because even though that may not be true in reality, if it's a thousand years from now and our civilization is so different and we think so different, 
that we don't think the same way, but the people who are reading your book all think like 21st century, mostly Americans, mostly Westerners. So you have to write a book where the, where the, the characters interact in a way that the readers can understand. But the setting is something that makes the nature of the conflict. Like if you're, are you conflicted over uh, whether or not to recognize artificial intelligence as, as uh, free individual people, you know, is that, is that your conflict or is it, you know, in your Caribbean Island, you conflicted because one guy wants to fish in this cove and you don't want to let him, you know, it's <laughs> <laughs> Um, last time we we talked a little bit about um, torturing our characters, and um, do do you ever um, like? Is it ever your goal to uh, to have your your characters all live happily ever after? Um, like, what 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 part of character conflict drives story for you? Do you how important is is uh you know kind of moving that carrot farther out so that your characters are always grasping at something they can't have well i mean my goal for my main character is not to live happily ever after as much as it is to fulfill their destiny right and whatever their destiny is not necessarily a destiny that's imposed on them from outside but what their what their potential is to become the best they can be. Like, let's just take, for example, again, wholesale slaughter. Cause I was thinking about before. Yeah. Um, the main character, Logan is, um, he's in a position where he has his father. Who's basically the King. They call him something else, but the guardian, but he's the King. Yeah. He has his best friend. He has his girlfriend. He has his brother. He has, his uh, superior officer who's like a father figure and he has um, this female ranger who has been like a, an aunt to him because his mother died when he was younger. He has all the support network around him. Right. <clears throat> so if he is going to become the best leader and military officer and person he can be in a, you know, an adult he needs all that support network stripped away from him so he can be the one supporting other people. So he can be, you know, standing on his own right. because if he's got all these people he can use as a crutch, then he's not going to be the best leader. So when I kill off his father and <laughs> when I kill off, you know, the, the female ranger who's like his aunt and when I kill off his best friend and when I make, the guy who the the officer who's like a father figure when I put pit them against each other and they have different philosophies and wind up on different sides, that's not because I'm torturing him. It's because he needs to stand on his own two feet and live up to his potential and become a leader on his own. So I don't consider now it may feel torturous to the if if you were the character losing right. all these people. But it's 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 to maximize and uh, there's a word for that that I can't think of. It's like uh, when you maximize your potential, it's uh, a realization. I don't I can't think yeah. of it, but you know what I'm saying. It's yeah. uh, you you have to become the best you can be. And when you're in, and when you're in a position where you're young and you have this all support network, 
you know, well, you know, a lot of people never don't become adults and really until their parents aren't there anymore. Right. You know, right. You, you don't, you don't have anybody to fall back on. You know, that's, exactly. that's when you become an adult. It's when you become a, the patriarch or a matriarch. It's when you become the one people depend on. So you have to strip away the support network in order for them to become the best they can be. And I don't, I am not of the opinion, like some authors seem to be, that if things if things are getting boring, I'll just kill off another one of his loved ones, you know, and <laughs> and get, right. make him go through pain. But you know, if because um, I feel like that's just cheating the reader, you know. If if you're, it's like the, the George R. R. Martin thing. The reason I never got past his first book was because any character that you care about is going to die. <laughs> Well, if that's the case, then why would I keep reading? I mean, I know it's very successful, so people must enjoy it. But for me, I'm like, I have no reason to keep reading. If I care about a character, I mean, some of them might die, but the idea that all of them are going to die and yeah. that I'm that none of them are going to get, have any realized potential, it it's not something I want to read. I mean, maybe other people do. Maybe I've become a, a multimillionaire like George R. R. Martin if I, <laughs> if I did it that way, but I just can't write those books. You know, the, the character has to have some kind of, I don't say destiny, but some kind of uh, realized potential where they become, they become, they do something meaningful. Yeah. Actualized is the word I was looking actualized. for. Actualized. Yes. Yes. They become yes. actualized by stripping away their crutches, you know, their mental yeah. and emotional crutches. Well, that's so a, I don't that's a, I don't want to torture them though. I feel like that's a that's a cheap and easy and lazy way to write. Yeah. Well, and and maybe that's a discussion we need to have another day, uh nihilism versus um, I, I don't know, but the, the, the author's worldview and, um, how that plays into how you craft a story and how you treat your characters, because, um, in, in a world where it seems like nothing matters, like in, in George R. R. Martin's world and anybody can just die and, you know, it, you know, it, everything seems futile, <laughs> Yes. You say futile or futile? Yeah, well, yeah. Both. <laughs> Sometimes the the futile nature is futile. <laughs> but oh man, well that's gonna uh, that's gonna wrap up our discussion of plot today. Next week, um, hopefully Josh will be back, and we're also gonna have a special guest. Uh, Richard Fox is gonna join us, and we're gonna discuss writing in a series and we'll find out what does the fox say yeah <laughs> <laughs> i have an idea what the fox says uh rick always a pleasure to hang out thanks for joining me today thanks for having me that's our episode for today there's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing but also the business of publishing be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. 
Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.